On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we celebrate the beginning of our fifth year, discuss the year ahead of us, and focus on the No Surprise Billing Act. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 148 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for January 9th, 2022, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. He is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So I hope everyone's new year is going well. It's funny to say 2022, isn't I it? Know. Yeah, and I, I I made sure that I didn't say, well, it can't be as bad as no stop saying don't. things like that. <laughs> so this is our first it. episode of 2022, and we celebrate the beginning of our fifth year. Uh, this mm -hmm. year. So we've completed four years. We started in January 1st, 2018. And since then, we have come a long way. And so here are some interesting statistics for those of you statistical geeks like myself. <laughs> uh, we have published 148 episodes. Uh, we have over 35,000 downloads, which puts us in the upper tier of all the Podbean um, uh, uh, podcasters on, on that particular channel. Uh, we have an average of 240 listeners per episode, and we currently have uh, 114 patron members. So, and the, for those who are not familiar with the patron program, the patron program allows you to get additional benefits in addition to the uh, the free program. I think the the biggest benefit, Sue, from the patron program is that weekly drop-in session, mm -hmm. which we've actually it's, uh, right now it's on Saturdays, which uh, a lot of our listeners really enjoy. And Sue, you are our third co-host. Our first mm -hmm. one was Judy D'Ambrosio. She yep. uh, hosted for probably about the first 10 episodes, I mm -hmm. think. Uh, then she got so busy and it just the logistics of it were uh, very difficult. Uh, and then uh, my daughter, uh, Jenna Alvarez, she was living with us for a while. So she mm -hmm. was a co-host for a short period of time. Uh, and then she decided that she needed a life. Um, so <laughs> she, uh, she passed the reins to Sue, who has been mm -hmm. by far the longest, uh, over three years you've been, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the co-host here. So Sue, thank you for all the, the hard work. We're going to talk a little bit more about your responsibilities here a little bit later here, but let's just talk a little bit about some of our, uh, about how we've been recording over the years. Yep. You know, originally we started in our dining room and we'd just have to set up all of that equipment and then pull it down afterwards or or live with it for a while. So it <laughs> got right. to be sometimes a little bit difficult. Never took it down. <laughs> we had the oh, I do remember. Then sometimes we were even in in your office for a while and we would have 
the dogs, you know, we, we could hear their feet tapping outside or, or whining or, you know, <laughs> wondering where we were. So, yeah, you had a lot of that running around. Or We couldn't um, do the laundry at the same time yes. because it's on the same floor. Um, yeah, it was uh, – those early uh, episodes had an awful lot of doggy noises running mm-hmm. around. And unfortunately, yep. uh, both of those dogs have since passed on. And now we have Rosie who, who yep. sits next to us in uh, when we're recording mm-hmm. most of these things. Um, and then uh, – and then finally in 2019, we renovated the ground floor bedroom in our home uh, to be a studio. And now we have actually two studios here in Spenceport, uh, in our home here in Spenceport, New York. Uh, the main studio, which has both video and audio recording. Of course, we added that video capability uh, during the pandemic in mm-hmm. March of 2020. I uh, learned an awful lot about video. I didn't know nothing about video beforehand. We never really anticipated doing video until we started doing those virtual conferences. And then we have a large conference space that's outside of the podcast room that holds uh, between 16 and 20 people uh, with sound and video recording capability and might know that we used that recently for the, uh, the, the for retreat. For our retreat, and right. that makes it very handy because there's always one or two people that don't live close that maybe can't make it in for yeah. whatever reason or, you know, child care or anything, so then they can tune in and, and we can all be together anyways. Right. And it's something we've even used occasionally for our clients when we right. want to meet with more than one person and and we should probably do that more. It's a very very handy thing and you know you can share your screen and all that kind of thing. Yeah, it's quite a quite a nice capability. It's nice to mm-hmm. have this uh, this ground floor. What uh, the way this is set up, it's actually like an in-law apartment down here. Mm-hmm. So it's got a full kitchen and uh, yeah. um you know uh, the the bedroom and then the the big uh, big area which is really large enough for that conference space. So we have quite a bit of uh, capabilities here. Um, and for those of you that are geeks out there, you might be interested in, in knowing how we record, or if you're interested in setting up your own uh, studio capabilities, our main studio has three iMacs, which provide all the audio processing and video recording, as well as managing the scripts and the presentations for the conferences. Remember in the beginning, we, we did actually use uh, paper. Uh, scripts, but now we uh, we have uh, monitors where we uh, we can observe the script as we're going through. Um, we have about twelve screens in here, which helps us to mm-hmm. uh, not. We don't need them so much for audio recording. We use yeah. them largely when we're doing the video stuff. But yeah, only two of them are mine. I, only John two, just likes yeah. to be surrounded. It's amazing. He's got a lot of stuff, but he controls the boards and everything. Right. So you know he needs more. And speaking of that, we have four cameras in the studio providing close-ups of Sue and my. And of course, uh, yes, uh, our puppy has her own puppy cam. Uh, (laughs) We keep calling her a puppy, but she really isn't a puppy anymore. Uh, And then we have a fourth camera that that is on the studio itself. We use that every once in a while just so that our our video, uh, when we're doing video conferences, people can see the setup that we have here. It's not particularly useful camera, but it is kind of fun just to show our setup. Uh, again, for the geeks, we use a Behringer audio board and six Shure SM58 microphones for all the recording in the studio. For uh, The Shure SM58 microphone is over 40 years old. Now, my microphones are not over 48, uh, 40 years old, um, but the, the design has been around for that long. And, you know, if you listen to the audio quality here compared to the beginning, uh, there's, a, there's a huge difference. Um, and they are... Uh, there's pictures of the SM58 being run over by, uh, you know, by trucks uh, and still surviving. That's how durable those microphones are. Uh, they're extremely uh, – and they're not terribly expensive microphones. So if you are setting up your own uh, system, I do recommend that. 
Now, I suggested we try that with our cars, but I don't know. Somehow you put the kibosh on it. <laughs> yeah, we don't Let's really run want over to test just... it. Yeah, there's every once in a while, Sue just really wants to run over all this equipment. Uh, the sound effects and the background music, we use a road roadcaster pro pod- podcast production studio board that's our newest edition here it's a, it's a nice little board probably about 600 dollars, but it really has helped with uh, uh sound effects uh, musical background which we didn't always have in the beginning uh and uh, just being able to uh you know, make things easier in the studio. And mm-hmm. and for those of you who are unfamiliar with the roadcaster or are interested in getting into podcasting, uh, the the roadcaster uh, could actually be used as your recording device. We don't do use it that way, but uh, but it's useful. And Sue does all of the audio editing using uh, a free program called Audacity, um, A-U-D-A-C-I-T-Y, if you're interested, again, in, in doing any audio recording. And uh, she's been doing that for over three years. I haven't done any any audio uh editing for quite a while. But I do all the video editing using uh, the iMovie program. Again, a free program that's available on any iMac. Uh, We also have three portable recording studio setups, uh, especially uh, basically so that we can travel with the studio. Uh, For example, Sue, you and I use uh, the bigger setup uh, when Mm. we're on vacation. I I don't, that's probably not a good term, right? When we are not remotely working. (laughs) When we're remotely working. Uh, So when we uh, use our our condos, um, we're able to uh, record uh, right from the, the condo with no uh, real difficulty. Um, and then, you know, we also can set up temporary studios and other parts of the house. And, of course, we use these studio setups when we're uh, doing um, recording from the various conferences. So we do want to remind uh, our listeners that if you have a conference coming up uh, and you'd like to have it recorded, we have uh, full capability uh, mm-hmm. to do that. We do want to thank all of our loyal listeners over the years and, of course, the great stories we hear about how we have helped you uh, over these years to prepare for and pass surveys. Uh, we do hear this all the time when we're talking to the patrons or when we're uh, visiting conferences. Uh, you are why we do this, and we are grateful for all of your support. And we do want to thank uh, our two long-term sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, of course, which uh, I own and uh, and all of us uh, that you see really on the podcast on a regular basis are employees of, uh, and of course, our dear friends over at Surgical Information Systems, SIS. Without the financial support and the support of our patrons, this show would not be possible. It is quite an expensive undertaking every year to uh, uh, to do this, and uh, we are very proud of, uh, of our ability to do this and thankful for all of those that uh, that um, that have supported us over these last four years and this is our fifth year let's have a lot of fun with it we'll uh, uh, we'll definitely try to pick up the pace actually last year 2021 was one of our slower years we had so many things going on we're not able to keep up with the mm-hmm. uh, the rapid pace but given the number of uh, backlog interviews that we have mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're going to have to definitely pick things up so let's uh, go on to recent news. Uh, I saw an article in uh, Becker's Hospital Review, and again, uh, those of you that are uh, long-term listeners know that we uh, we read extensively Becker's, uh, both their uh, Hospital Review and their ASC Review. At uh, so Becker'sASC.com is where they're. Um, you can go to get uh, latest information. But this is actually from the Hospital Review portion, and this was uh, from Molly Gamble, um, and. 
Uh, she indicated that uh, the uh, Rochester, Minnesota-based Mayo Clinic is has decided to prohibit uh, certain types of face coverings, and they're asking patients and their visitors to ditch the typical cloth versions that are out there, or the cloth mm-hmm. versions that are out there, citing the variability in, in cloth mask performance. And Sue, you and I have noted this too. We got ma- uh, cloth masks in the very beginning of the mm-hmm. pandemic in yep. 2020, and quickly ditched it for our kind of boring but uh, very useful, um, you know, paper mask or yeah. the surgical mask as well as the KN95s, and we do have some N95s also. Uh, but I've been seeing a lot of literature lately uh, about this, and I thought it was interesting that uh, here the Mayo Clinic actually came out and said, no, mm-hmm. you can't wear that uh, type of thing. Yeah, and they will actually provide a different type of mask if somebody comes in Walk with, in. you know, even like the gaiters or the bandanas yeah. that sometimes people wear. So, you know, they'll just then ask them to switch that out. It's too bad about those gaiters. They were comfortable, but they did look I, – I wore one in the beginning. You bought mm-hmm. me a couple of them. I think I wore them once, and uh, I think I got arrested, did I, for like they thought I was – no, I'm uh, – but they just <laughs> looked so something. awkward. And, and <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we uh, those are just sitting around. Now they are uh, becoming uh, little neck warmers, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what they all start is. So people just start – or the bandanas, you know, and you can just pull them up. I even – then we had a – there was a – place that I used to order clothes and they had a dress that came with some type of like a almost like a cowl neck thing that yeah. was where you could loop it over your ears. <laughs> so you always had this mask thing. So, you know, people really tried to begin with, with, but I, I don't things. think that that would work anymore. <laughs> Yeah, and and there was a quote in this uh, that said, while a high-quality cloth mask may perform similarly to Mm -hmm. a medical-grade mask, patients and visitors uh, use a wide range of face coverings, making standardization necessary. Uh, So they do point out that single-layer cloth masks and neck gaiters and bandanas, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, which are worn, they really don't provide the optimal uh, protection. So if you are going to use – so again, our advice out there, and again, in a medical setting, uh, you should be wearing – you must be wearing – uh, a surgical mask. A surgical mask, or, KN95, or if, if you fit tested everybody mm-hmm. in N95. And again, we do want to remind everybody the importance of uh, if you have an N95 mask out there um, that you uh, you get fit tested, have a respiratory protection mm-hmm. program, and do a medical mm-hmm. evaluation of all of your uh, – any employees that are fit tested for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we did want to talk about the No Surprises Act, so a little bit of history on this, and we'll mention it during the interview uh, later on, but uh, we had hoped, we originally planned on getting this episode out before uh, the end of December, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, the recording did not work, so first time ever that we've had yeah. that problem, and it was kind of a... Uh, awkward situation, but uh, we have been able to get everything together, and uh, we're going to give you a quick summary of the No Surprises Act. Actually, I don't know that it's a quick summary, Sue. Nope. Uh, this is not an easy thing. And then we are going to have an interview with my dear friend, uh, Scott Palmer, who uh, will give us a little bit more information. We do encourage you to uh, visit the website. We'll give you a uh, reference to that in the show notes. Uh, and it has a lot of information about the act and what you need to, to, to comply as well as example forms and notices. So let's start by talking about why the act exists in the first place. And that is simply to provide protections for consumers from surprise bills. Over the years, uh, patients have uh, gone in, had surgery in some surgery centers, and then they didn't know up front what the cost was going to be, and they get what we refer to as surprise bills. Often these surprise bills happen because a patient uh, did not know that the organization was out of network or didn't know the ramifications of the patient mm-hmm. of the organization being out of network. So what are the new protections patients have if they do have health insurance? 
So this is what CMS tells patients on their website. If you get health coverage through your employer, the health insurance marketplace, or an individual health insurance plan um, that you purchase directly from an insurance company, effectively these new rules will, one, ban surprise bills for emergency services, even if you get them out of network and without approval beforehand or prior authorization. They'll ban out-of-network cost sharing, like out-of-network co-insurance or co-payments, for all emergency and some non-emergency services. So you can't be charged more than in-network cost sharing for these services. They'll ban out-of-network charges and balance bills for supplemental care like anesthesiology or radiology by out-of-network providers who work at an in-network facility and require that healthcare providers and facilities give you an easy-to-understand notice explaining that getting care out of network could be more expensive and options to avoid uh, the balance bills. You're not required to sign this notice or to get care out of network. So I think, because that's usually where it'll come in. You think you're in an in-network place, right. and then the anesthesiologist is not, and suddenly you get this bill that you didn't even expect. So, right. you know, that we they're protected I, I do that. think, you know, we talked to Scott a little bit about this, but it's going to have a huge impact on uh, out-of-network billing, I think, mm -hmm, in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, these changes really are here to protect the uh, patient <laughs> from those uh, financial disasters that they find mm -hmm. themselves in if they get a very large bill. But it's a little onerous for the uh, surgery center. Yeah, and, and the, the challenge, Sue, that I've been having, uh, I've been getting the phone calls. I try to punt them off to you, but you say something about you being a nurse and don't want to talk about it. <laughs> My financials uh, here comes That's down. right, and Rosie the <laughs> Puppy doesn't want to talk about it either, so I seem to, seem to be taking those questions a yes. lot. Um, is that everybody says, "Well, why do I have to do this? Why can't the do this sounds like something the doctor should be doing?" Well, uh, it is just because this the, the law was written for uh, healthcare providers, those organizations that are certified under mm -hmm. uh, the ASC program. In our case, so. yeah, and you're kind of like the coordinator of the right. care, I guess. Is the other you're I don't remember the word convener. Convener. Yeah, the convener. Yep. So, what if you don't have health insurance or choose to pay pay for care on your own without any health insurance. So if you don't have insurance or you choose to pay for care without using your health insurance, also known as uh, self-paying for care, and that happens usually with uh, plastic surgery, these rules make sure that you get a good faith estimate. Uh, also, they use the initials GFE for good faith est estimate of how much your care will cost before you get care. Now, I should point out that most organizations, of course, are, are providing this information mm -hmm. to the patient. I think we're uh, often we find that we're speaking to the choir when we're talking to our audience here. They're, you know, obviously providing high quality uh, yeah. care and they're very careful with your patient. I don't think any of us want our patients to, to be angry with us because we didn't provide them information. Yeah. up front. So here's an example of what you're going to probably want to have in your policies. So this is an example wording that I would recommend putting into your policies. On January 1st, 2022, the No Surprises Act goes into effect, including provisions pertinent to ambulatory surgery centers. The act includes the requirement to provide a good faith estimate to uninsured and self-pay individuals through new rules aimed to protect consumers, excessive out-of-pocket costs will be restricted and emergency services must continue to be covered without any prior authorization, regardless of whether or not a provider or facility is in network. And then we recommend that you provide um, some definitions. So here are some definitions that should be included in your policy. So you should define out-of-network or OON as providers and facilities that haven't signed a contract with the patient's health plan. 
and balanced billing. OON providers may be permitted to bill the patient for the difference between what their plan agreed to pay and the full amount charged for a service. This amount is likely more than in-network costs for the same service and might not count toward the patient's deductible. And then the last definition should be surprise billing, which is an unexpected balance bill. This may happen when the patient can't control who is involved in his or her care. For example, a visit is scheduled at an in-network facility, but there's an unexpected treatment by an out-of-network provider. And and then parenthetically here, that would be like an anesthesiology or pathologist that is not Mm in-network. And here's some example requirements for that policy. When a patient receives services from an ambulatory surgery center, certain providers there may be out of network. In these cases, the most those providers may bill the patient is the plan's in-network cost-sharing amount. This applies to emergency medicine, anesthesia, pathology, radiology, laboratory, assistant surgeon, hospitalist, or intensivist services. These providers can't bill the patient and may not ask the patient to give up his or her protections not to be balanced billed. Um, Out-of-network providers can't balance bill unless the patient has given written consent and given up his or her protections. And then we suggest that you uh, attach a form to your policy. Mm. Patients are never required to give up the protection from balance billing. They are not required to get care out-of-network. They can choose a provider or facility in their plan's network. And when balance billing isn't allowed, patients are only responsible for paying their share of the cost which would be co-payments, co-insurance, and deductibles that they would pay if the provider or facility was in-network. And the health plan generally must base what the patient owes the provider or facility cost-sharing, in other words, on what it would pay an in-network provider or facility and show that amount in the explanation of benefits or the EOB. And they must count any amount the patient pays for emergency or out-of-network services towards the deductible and the out-of-pocket limit. So those are what we've indicated above are really uh, examples of what should be included in your policy. Mm-hmm. Now, let's move on to the procedures that your organization should be putting into place. The availability of a good faith estimate must be prominently displayed on the facility's website if applicable and on-site where scheduling or questions about the cost of care may occur. And so CMS has provided an example form that you would post in your uh, waiting area, uh, pre-op area, you know, wherever you're actually discussing with the patient all of those things that you discussed prior to the patient going mm-hmm. back. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll post that on the, uh, the show notes for okay. today. And at the time of scheduling, providers or facilities are required to ask if the individual has health insurance, and if so, whether they want to have a, have a claim submitted to their health insurance coverage for the item or service they are seeking. So, again, I think this is something, Sue, that everybody does. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's really best practices is obviously to mm-hmm, check with mm-hmm. your patient to make sure that they have insurance for what's going on. Yeah. Now this uh, regulation just flatly requires it. Yeah. And if the patient does not have insurance or does not plan on having the claim submitted to the insurance carrier, the provider of the facility must inform the individual both verbally and in writing of their ability upon request or at the time of scheduling, to receive a good faith estimate of the expected charge. And again, something that most likely is going to be happening already in your organization. Mm -hmm. And the good faith estimate must include expected charges for the items or services that are reasonably expected to be provided together with the primary item or service, including items or services that may be provided by other providers 
and facilities. For example, for surgery, the good faith estimate might include the cost of surgery, both the facility and physician fee, any labs or tests, and the anesthesia that may be that might be used during the operation. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in a minute, but this is probably the most onerous part mm-hmm. of this and the most difficult thing to implement. And other s- items or services related to the surgery that might be scheduled separately, such as pre-surgery appointments or physical therapy in the weeks after surgery, would not be included. And that's fortunate for us since those are really unpredictable. And the healthcare provider or the convener, as we mentioned earlier, um, will be responsible for collecting good faith estimates from co-providers. The convening provider or facility is defined as the provider or facility who receives the initial request for a good faith estimate from an uninsured or self-pay individual. In the case of a request from an individual who is not yet scheduled, it is a provider or facility that would be responsible for scheduling the primary item or service. Um, which would be the ASC in most cases, in many cases. So this is the uh, the thing that has been causing quite a bit of uh, of uh, consternation from um, our clients as well as some of our listeners. We had a, a session uh, on Saturday with our patrons uh, where we discussed this, and this was by far the biggest question that our patrons had going into uh, that uh, conversation yesterday, uh, where uh, you know they, they're saying, "Why do we have to do this?" Well, by definition, you are the convener, you are mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the organization that is certified by Medicare, so therefore you come under this regulation. And as I said before, this is going to be the most difficult thing to do. And then you need to complete a good faith estimate form with the appropriate information. So let's go on to discussing what the requirements are for a good faith estimate. So it needs to be in clear and understandable language, which is good luck with that, right, Sue? I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, well, we'll do the best you can. Yeah. Uh, and it must include an itemized list of each item or service grouped by each provider or facility offering care. Um, and then it, it needs to include specific details of each item or service and the expected charge. So if you're doing a uh, procedure that has multiple codes or, or mm-hmm. multiple procedures with the patient, each of those is going to have to be separately listed. And uh, you need to have a paper or electronic copy of the good faith estimate based on the patient's preference, even if the provider also provides the good faith estimate information uh, over the phone or verbally and in person. We're going to talk about this a little bit in the interview uh, as to other ways that you uh, might be able to do this or other op- alternatives that you might have. But uh, but you need to uh, need you do need to get it in writing to the um, to the patient. And they did set a timeline for good faith estimates. So a good faith estimate must be provided within one business day after scheduling when the primary item or service is scheduled at least three days in advance or no later than three business days after scheduling when the primary item or service is scheduled at least 10 business days in advance or within three business days after an uninsured or self-pay consumer who has not yet scheduled requests a good faith estimate. So this is going to be quite challenging because, uh, and there are some rules, which we'll talk about it during the interview if you're doing a last-minute schedule also. So, uh, again, uh, you're going to have to stick to these uh, time frames. We actually, during the interview, we also talk a little bit about the staffing challenges that you have. But here's an important thing is HHS has stated that it will take time 
for providers to get systems in place mm-hmm. to receive information from co-providers and co-facilities. So they have indicated that from January 1st, 2022 through December 31st, 2022, HHS will exercise its enforcement discretion in situations where a good faith estimate does not include expected charges from other providers that are involved in the individual's care. And the ASC is still responsible for the good faith estimate of the facility fee. Mm-hmm. Now, some people have interpreted this as saying, well, I don't need to do this yet. You have to show that you're trying. You do, <laughs> but right. But if, if it doesn't run smoothly, if something is missed here and there, it sounds like they, they may or may not, but they may right. um, cut you some, some slack. slack. Yeah, and and of course, no guidance as to what they mm-hmm. really mean from this. And I think uh, we're going to have to, and we'll we'll try to keep everybody up to date as new information comes out on mm-hmm. this. But And there's so much here that is, uh, you know, very difficult to implement. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that everybody is going to be able to do all of this uh, without, without adding some substantial support. As you mentioned, you know, we'll keep you up to date. And as it gets into practice, I'm sure we're going to start hearing from people who, yeah. you know, run into this and, and you know, just how accepting HHS is and, and if anybody has found a good uh, process for doing this. So let's now talk about the patient provider dispute resolution. Now, uh, the the uh, there is a patient provider dispute resolution, and we're not going to go into detail because there's quite a bit to it, and not everything is settled at this point. But you might want to read it uh, on the website. Again, we'll give you the link for that. Here's the big takeaway, though: is patients are eligible for the dispute resolution process if the total bill charges are at least four hundred dollars higher than the combined good faith estimates of charges for that facility. Mm-hmm. If they're under, then it's not applicable. But if they're over, then you uh, um, you uh, you do have an issue uh, that will have to go to dispute resolution if the patient requests it. Okay, and this will be on the HHS website. Right, and I'll get, again, we'll provide mm-hmm. that link. So last week I had an opportunity to talk to Scott Palmer, an old friend of mine with HST Pathways, and he and I spoke uh, in a little more detail about the No Surprises Act. So let's take a short break, and we'll come back and play that interview. Our listener patron program, also known as ASC Central, has really taken off over the past 12 months, and we are so grateful to all of our over 100 members. Our patron members help support our efforts here on the podcast and get a number of great benefits also. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is the longest-running podcast dedicated exclusively to the ASC industry. ASC Central provides members with a wealth of management tools and resources, including regular members-only Zoom sessions with John and other members to discuss relevant topics, quarterly Zoom meetings where we update patron members with important issues in the ASC industry, periodic study sessions for leaders that are planning on taking the CASC or CAPE exam, and access to a large database that includes federal regulations, interpretive guidelines, and the state regulations, checklists for administrators and nurse managers, example meeting minute templates, example policies and procedures, budgeting and financial projection tools, risk assessments and example forms, and much, much more. Members also get discounts on books written by John Gailey, ranging from $10 to $80 per book, and can even schedule a personalized mock survey with John and save over $1,000. For more information and to access this additional content, please visit ASCPodcast.com or ASC-Central.com. This 
This is John Gale. I'm here with Scott Palmer. Uh, Scott is uh, uh, Senior Vice President for Patient Access over at HST. And Scott and I go way back, way, I mean, more than 30 years, Scott, right? Yeah, back to uh, back to the 80s when we first met. That's right. It's uh, hard to believe we're that old. <laughs> and and I have all this gray hair, but you don't. I, it's good genes, I guess, huh? Yeah, it, it, exactly right. So. <laughs> Well, thank you for uh, joining us. Now, as a bit of a backstory for our listeners, uh, you and I recorded this episode about a week and a half ago or almost two weeks ago, and the uh, recording ended up, it's kind of the first time this has ever happened. The recording was so, the quality was so bad that we just couldn't resurrect it. Uh, so I, I, I asked uh, poor Scott if he would re-record it for us, and then as we were talking, uh, just before we started the recording, we just said, you know, so much has happened. Uh, I mean, now that uh, we've recorded it before it went into place, and now we're recording afterwards. And, you know, I've had uh, quite a number of uh, conversations with people about it. So I think uh, we might actually have a different conversation than we did the first time, Scott. Yeah. And same here, John. I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to a number of hospitals and ASCs as well in the last week or two. And uh, so people are starting to get their head around what, what changes need to be made. Well, so let's put this in perspective. The No Surprises Act went into effect on January 1st, 2022. This has been pending for quite a long time. I mean, it, this shouldn't be a surprise to everybody, but it has been a surprise for uh, many organizations who haven't been keeping up with it. And certainly since January 1st, I've been getting a lot of questions. I know you have too. So before we get into the details of it, why don't you uh, tell our audience a little bit about your background and your, your creds so that you can uh, explain why you, uh, you're familiar with this topic. Yeah, certainly. So uh, I'm, uh, I've been in healthcare technology for 42 years now, and uh, most of that in outpatient, most of that working with surgery centers. This is an industry I'm very passionate about, very proud of the work we've done over the years. When John and I met, he was using our Temple product, uh, which was a DOS-based product. And, and we, uh, we started working on something called Temple for Windows, which later became Advanix. Uh, and then we came out with a, a something of a of a light web-based product called Vision, and I've had the opportunity to to work in small companies and large companies, and still have thousands of facilities and practices using software we developed. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I became interested in the the question around estimation oh, about five years ago, and started a company called Clarity. Uh, with the idea that based on our revenue cycle experience, this would be relatively easy. And, and I can say it's some of the most complex software we've ever developed and still learning. You know, we're technologists who pretend to know a little bit about revenue cycle and compliance. Um, and thankfully, we have, you know, a lot of passionate people in our industry who wanted to support us. Well, uh, but first of all, thank you for all the work that you've done for our industry, the software that uh, you created uh, that started with Temple back in uh, in the 80s, uh, you know, obviously have had a major impact on the industry and it's uh, relatives <laughs> down the road, uh, you know, still have a major impact. Uh, many of our centers still use Advanix, believe it or not, uh, which is still an excellent system, which really does come from technology from the 90s. So it's amazing that a product has, has held up that long, but uh, great products. I, I do have to tell you though, Scott, I still love Temple. I mean, there's a couple things about Temple that uh, we still don't have, like like the interface with uh, finance. There was actually a built-in, relatively good uh, general ledger system built into Temple, which you don't see in any of the modern systems at all. Yeah, thank you. Well, well the uh, it was by necessity because we had to develop those things. They didn't exist. You right. had to write your own word processor. You had to write your own APGL system. 
And uh, so you had the, the benefit of one uh, stop shopping right, so for right. all those software products. So, so let's, uh, let's talk about my least favorite topic right now, the No Surprises Act and everything that's uh, come with it. It's had major ramifications, especially for centers that are out of network or, or you know, with some or, or all of their insurances uh, or have a very large self-pay population. So, Scott, uh, you've had a little bit of experience. I've had a little bit of experience now uh, with the No Surprises Act being in place. What have been some of your uh, biggest uh, challenges that you, the biggest challenges that surgery centers are facing as they've gone? into it. I know, I know you work with the hospitals too, and, and some of their experiences might be relevant also. So go ahead and explain some of the challenges you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as we all understand or soon will understand, this is a big deal uh, that impacts providers and payers. And, uh, and it is a very broad law, but only certain pieces of it are being enforced right now, which we'll be talking about but understand that it goes much further than that and different pieces will be come into play over the next year or two. Uh, it's uh, expect, expected to evolve quickly. You know, there is a lawsuit challenging it. And I think uh, that's just very narrow pieces of it. So assume this will remain. CMS is establishing the baseline, but states can have additional requirements as well. And as an example, we've been working in Indiana this year which does require a good faith estimate to be provided to all patients, including insured patients, uh, as well as a download. Um, ASCs must put up a uh, standard charges download, similar to what CMS does for hospitals. Which uh, Um, has been a big issue lately because so many hospitals have not been doing that. The CMS has really gotten gotten on their case and, and threatened some significant penalties. Yeah, absolutely. So in this discussion, we won't cover, obviously, emergency care, air, air ambulances, and so on, payer responsibility. So let's, let's dive into what are the things that uh, ASCs are required to do and, and uh, what, what are our recommendations as technologists. So thinking of things first that are easier on the list, number one is disclosure. So CMS has provided a model disclosure that must be posted physically in the facility must be accessible on your website, and must be uh, provided to every patient, including insured patients. Number two is you must maintain accurate provider directories, as the law refers to it, meaning which, which plans you participate with, and you must coordinate with payers to make sure that they have the same information you have and it's accurate. You must verify the patient's insurance and share that with your co-providers, a concept we'll get into in more detail. And of course, that's a good business practice anyway, but this becomes more important because the onus is on the facility to understand that what plan that you think the patient has because it will impact their, their estimate. You need to review your standard fees. And uh, let me relate that to the experience we went through last year with hospitals. Uh, charge masters, especially in hospitals, can oftentimes be a mess. The uh, duplicate items, the, the standard charges have no uh, correlation to market realities. And we saw hospitals saying, time out, we, we can't show the public this. So I would encourage everyone to look at your charge master and make sure you have some reasonableness to your standard fees. Perhaps they're a percentage of Medicare or something related to that. And one last uh, relatively easy thing to do is look at your scheduling process and make sure that 
you understand the, the, the things at a CPT and a diagnosis level. Uh, oftentimes, facilities schedule with a generic procedure. Patients coming in for a knee arthroscopy, well, as we know, there could be 15 different CPT codes. So start to think about changing your scheduling process so that uh, you're requesting more specific information because it can have a big impact on the uh, ultimately the uh, the patient and payer responsibility. So yeah, that's uh, a really John, good that's point. The easier stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think a lot of systems out. I see this frequently where they, uh, you know, the scheduler might not, you know, even know actually uh, about CPTs. They put in a very generic code, especially in the smaller centers, and that really is not acceptable anymore. So let's talk about some of the harder things, and starting with the good faith estimate for uninsured and self-pay patients, and and the reason the CMS makes a distinction between the two uninsured patient being someone who doesn't have insurance, self-pay being someone who does not want to go through their insurance. So in that case, you obviously treat them as a, as a self-pay um, and the insured uh, will, will follow. You could be sure of that. So there's this concept of a convening versus a co-provider. And the convener is defined as someone who's responsible for scheduling. So clearly that's the ASC, the HOPD, or the hospital. Uh, and then you as the convener are responsible for coordinating with the co-providers, anesthesia, the surgeon groups, pathology, lab, diagnostic, to make sure for those uninsured and self-pay patients that you're giving them a good faith estimate that includes the typical charges they might, they might see show up. Um, in terms of timing, the convener must provide uh, the good faith estimate within a day of scheduling, no less than 72 hours uh, ahead of time for pre-scheduled patients and no less than three hours in advance for add-on cases. Your co-providers must turn around an estimate within 24 hours to you to help you facilitate that process. So that's already causing some problems now, as you're about to tell us, of course, there, you know, there at the present time, there's a little bit of a leeway in that particular uh, issue. But a lot of the questions that I'm getting from my, um, uh, from our clients and from our listeners is, uh, you got to be kidding me. I've got to coordinate with all of these other organizations. Uh, one person actually uh, has said, shouldn't this be the responsibility of the surgeon? So why don't you provide the answer to that? <laughs> The answer is, I think, as history has shown, they look at the facility as a uh, you know a better organized uh, option with more resources, so they put the onus on the facility. That's, right, that's just my right. take, and that is indeed what the law says. So, right. So, um, so the uh, let's get into the estimate itself. It needs to be uh, an independent document; can't be part of a, of a packet of documents. It needs to be printed or electronic. It must follow the CMS contents, content requirements, which are uh, pretty, pretty lengthy. Things like the MPI, tax ID, plan specifications, and so on. It must include all the anticipated services that we just mentioned. Uh, bundles are okay and bundles are encouraged. So if you're coordinating bundles with your providers, that's, that's just fine. Um, and you're not required to disclose unanticipated services, therapy, emergency services, those types of things are, uh, are not, do not need to be on the estimate. 
the estimate must be updated if uh, and if there's any anticipated changes. So uh, procedure changes, implant is added, those types of things. Uh, you need to update the uh, the estimate. And uh, patients can request the estimate from any of their providers who are then obligated to provide that. So let's look at that in more detail. The patient reaches out to the surgeon and says, hey, I I would like uh, an estimate that the onus then shifts to the surgeon's office to give the patient the estimate. So, of course, hard to prove that, but it's, uh, that is part of the law. And uh, you should provide the estimate to all patients regardless of their financial status. In other words, if, if you determine there's no balance, which, of course, wouldn't apply to these category of patients, uh, you, you are still obligated to give them a, uh, an estimate. Um, and why? Because this estimate becomes part of the medical record and must be retained for seven years and will become a critical part of the independent dispute resolution process we'll talk about in a moment. So that's, uh, John, that's the, you know, kind of the, the high level of the, the estimate. Um, the, let's just talk about disclosures for a moment then. What we're doing is we're appending the disclosure to the estimate, again, using the CMS format. Uh, in our electronic form, we're saying, and by the way, here's a link to to your patient rights, mm-hmm. and click here if you'd like to view that, and that pulls up a web page which shows them the uh, the CMS model disclosure, which can be customized by provider. I think one of the the things that's been coming back to me uh, was again some of our listeners and some of our our clients is that in many cases they don't have uh, address telephone number. I mean, hopefully they have a telephone number or an email address uh, to get this estimate to uh, in writing to the the patient. What are your suggestions mm-hmm. on that? Uh, again, back to the idea of the intake patient intake process. Uh, I neglected to mention that um, you you will need good contact information for the patient, and of yeah. course, then that also, if you're planning on doing that electronically, you need some type of a secure email system that allows you to distribute a, a document to to the patient. So, I think initially, a lot of this for most facilities will be done by mail or by uh, you know telephone communication, and then a written copy given to the patient when they check in as an alternative to an, an email or a text. So, it, it is acceptable if to, uh, to give it site. verbally and then follow up in uh, writing when the patient checks in. Potential? No, the way the law is written, no. Okay. But I think in practice, you know, a lot of it will fall that fall back to: Do you have an audit trail? Did you keep yeah. a record of your communications with the patient? Do you have a copy of what you handed the patient? I don't expect the level of enforcement at that level, at least initially. Right, I understand. So, Scott, that is really one of the interesting things that I found in the last uh, couple days as we've been talking to clients: is how many of them are or maybe not a lot of them, but I was surprised that you would even uh, have a situation where you don't have the address of the patient before you, uh, before that patient shows up. So I, I do think that that's, uh, you know, something you really need to work with. So we've been working with our clients to, you know, make sure that they have good communication with the office, which has to have that information, uh, and that that be provided to the center as part of the scheduling process. It seems kind of obvious. Your point about the email system is also important, you know, uh, having some type of a secure system, which most email systems have the capability of doing, but get that in place right away. Mm-hmm. Correct. 
So let's talk about out of network because, of course, that'll be a big challenge also for uh, for you know centers that have not. Uh, you know, we've got centers that are just in the process of opening up and are you know are out of network out of necessity, and of course, other organizations that have chosen not to be in network because of the rates that have been proposed to them. Correct. Right. So, uh, out of network is is allowed. Right, but the yeah. the rates you use are defined, uh, and there's a waterfall of, of of impact in the law, which starts with a a median rate that was established by the state. I don't think that exists in in many states. Right. Uh, then that falls to a a rate that's provided by the payer for their average rate, and and so on. This all falls under the umbrella of a QPA or a qualified payment amount, which is really designed to be the median in-network rate for that service. So balance billing is prohibited unless you have a consent from the patient uh, saying basically, and and CMS does have a model consent that says, uh, I am waiving my rights. I understand I have the ability to go choose a in-network provider but I'm okay going forward with the uh, facility. And then uh, as you calculate any amounts, be sure to use the in-network amounts accumulators for the patient's uh, uh, insurance benefits, not the out-of-network, which of course could lead to balance billing. And, uh, and, and, and if necessary, get the consent. A consent is probably a, a good practice, but uh, John, as you, you've pointed out in prior discussions, it's, not likely a reality. Right. So the question comes up when you're negotiating with an insurance company, you don't actually know what the in-network benefit would be. Um, And I think that's one of the questions that we have. I, I, uh, again, some of our clients uh, have pointed out that, you know, how do I get this information? And, you know, obviously you're going to have to communicate. You're going to have to verify with the insurance company, the availability of in-network benefits and ask them what that number would be. Right. Or as a fallback, look at your average payment amount, say for all commercial payers for right. a period of time. And, and I think that would pass the, uh, you know, reasonableness test. Yeah. And that, that's exactly, uh, thank you for pointing that out. That's exactly what we've been advising too, is that, you know, if you can't get that number, I mean, you still have to verify with the insurance company that they have uh, out-of-network benefits, but if if you cannot get an in-network benefit number, uh, at least look at your own information internally to come up with that number. And again, you're going to talk in, in a minute about what happens if your uh, actual number is outside of uh, the amount that you propose or you put in the uh, good faith estimate. Right. And for these uninsured and self-pay patients, we typically recommend that facilities have a calculator. For example, a percentage of Medicare, I like 150% as a reasonable rate for self-pay and uninsured patients. And if it's not covered by Medicare, then it's some percentage of your standard fee that you know right. is, is in line with that type of calculation. So as you're giving a self-pay patient an estimate, there's consistency across the different estimates that you're quoting to different patients. Talk a little bit about what happens if your estimate, uh, if the good faith estimate varies from what the actual bill would be. Sure. Uh, so couple things. If there's a discrepancy of greater than $400, the patient has the ability to uh, enter into an independent dispute resolution process. So they have 120 days to initiate a claim. uh, And the claim is directly with the facility that goes into a 30-day resolution period to see if the parties can negotiate a settlement. 
And if that fails, then it, it's going to be directed to a, uh, an IDR entity, which is uh, folks who have signed up to be arbitrators for, uh, for this process. And uh, I, it's not clear to me who would choose the arbitrator, but an arbitrator would be chosen and uh, both parties would present their case. And then the uh, prevailing party would uh, win the dispute. And there might be some additional fees as well to be paid by the party who uh, does not prevail. So, and, and there's, uh, and I'm being vague because this is not well defined under the law. So there's more information to come on this. So, At, yeah, until uh, when we start seeing things, probably in the next 90 days, when we start seeing some, uh, some actual uh, action in this area. Yeah. Well, one other uh, unrelated point to that, though, is that uh, part of the law also prevents these gag clauses, clauses that payers put into effect, uh, removing the ability or giving you the ability to disclose allowable amounts. Now, I think that's going to have far reaching implications. Uh, imagine a world where you know that your competitor down the street gets different rates than you do, or the payer knows that you're willing to take a lower amount than uh, your competitor. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I don't know if that's uh, how that's going to play out, but yeah, that's, uh, interesting. That, that's going to be a big deal. So, uh, so staffing. <laughs> so the big question that that's come up within the last week is I need more people in order to be able to do this. Uh, of course, one of the arguments that I would make is you probably needed more people in the first place. You just, uh, you know, been trying to run on a shoestring here. And of course, right now, of course, it's very difficult even to get staff. I mean, we know our staffing has become quite challenging uh, in the new reality that we're in. So let's talk about that. First of all, is, you know, what type of staffing issues do you think you're going to need? And then move into that ultimate question. How can we uh, help those staff uh, with better information, hopefully through technology to, to, uh, to get this information out there? Interesting. You, you're uh, as you're saying that. I'm thinking about the some of the footnotes and the comments that were submitted to CMS, and CMS was kind enough to calculate the staff needs to to do this. And uh, I I want to say it was three hours to calculate a good faith estimate and give it to a patient. The as that's what the average would be, uh, which is of course you know quite quite onerous for most yeah. facilities to spend three hours on one patient. Well, and let's so, let's put that in perspective. That means three times the number of out of network, self pay, and uninsured cases that you have. So, so you're right. If that number holds up, it's a pretty easy way to figure out the additional staff you need to bring in. Right, right. So, so a couple things. So let's talk about price transparency in in general. And and I always had a you know a saying: if you can't fix it, feature it. Well, we're not going to fix this. Yeah. So let's feature it. Let's let's make our industry, let's make our facilities the leaders in price transparency. Um, and and some of the benefits you're going to see, we've, we've run $10 billion through our estimator to date. And what we're seeing is we can reach 80% of patients electronically. We're seeing across the industry, patient responsibility of 25% with self-pay collection rates, you know, um, typically uh, below 50%. And in reaching these patients electronically, 30% are willing to pay up front. In other words, as soon as they receive their initial estimate, they mm-hmm. reach for the credit card and make a payment. So you got, I want to get those points right away. Exactly. <laughs> um, 
And, uh, and uh, obviously, as we're talking about all this, we're not talking about affordability, which is a big concern and right. the need for payment plans and, and uh, the need for charity care and understanding, starting the discussion very early with the patient. You know, Mr. Palmer, it looks like you have a high deductible plan. It's early in the year. You're going to have $4,000 responsibility out of pocket. Uh, let's talk about our options here. And uh, so... Um, so I think as an industry, if we, we we're going to need to embrace price transparency, states are going to mandate it. CMS is obviously working on that. So um, it's a long way of saying that we, we need to commit to either staff or technology or both. Technology does exist today that can produce accurate estimates and get those estimates in front of patients. Um, and uh, we typically see uh, manual process. We, we pretty much double the throughput of what's got, what's being done manually. So if you're not going to go in that direction, then you're going to have to fall on maybe adding another FTE, depending on your out of network and uninsured volume and, and whether or not you can also be providing and calculating uh, estimates for your insured patients to make sure a, they have visibility, uh, but also to be collecting more upfront you will see your patient SAT scores go up. Um, in my experience with patient satisfaction, financial disclosure was always the lowest yeah. score for surgery centers. Your doctors are going to be happier. Your anesthesiologists are going to uh, uh, like the fact that you've confirmed the insurance and patients understand their responsibility, including anesthesia up front. So um, lots, lots of benefits. And, uh, and one last thought on, on this front, John, is I would also consider publishing your pricing on your website. Uh, we have, of course, a great quality story, great patient experience, and reasonable costs. So let's, let's feature that on our websites by publishing our pricing. And technology also exists where patients can come after hours to your website, request an estimate for services using their plan benefits, and as if you had created the estimate for them. And we're seeing 10% of patients who visit facility websites turn into scheduled cases within 60 days, uh, which is pretty meaningful for driving case volume, especially for those, you know, procedures you like to do more of. Yeah, that's a very good story. I mean, you're right. I, I, we, we have a great story to tell our uh, patients out there, and we shouldn't be afraid to publish our fees, assuming our fees, are, of course, are reasonable and our fee schedule is easy to read and understand. Because if you compare yourself to the hospital, certainly, uh, first of all, I haven't seen a hospital website that has a, an easy way of reading their fees there. So uh, there's, I think from a transparency standpoint, we've got it nailed. And let's not be afraid to actually publish those numbers. And, and of course, as you said, your point really well taken that that transparency across other uh, surgery centers in the country is going to be useful. Uh, you know, we've always had that antitrust issue there of, about sharing that type of information, but by, you know, this law might actually be able to turn that around. Correct. So, Scott, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. We'll, uh, I'll tell you what, let's bring you back on in a couple months uh, or, or sooner if we have to to, uh, to see uh, how the experience is, especially when we find out what happens with the arbitration uh, process. So I think our listeners are going to want to hear it. I, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, you're welcome, John. And thank you for the podcast. It's a great resource for the industry and really appreciate all the work you do on that. Thank you so much. And 
this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff. So here are upcoming topics, which we'll be talking about in uh, episodes. We're going to try to go to a weekly um, publishing. <laughs> Sue's looking at me in the studio here. Is like, yeah, that's <laughs> we keep trying, happen. but yeah. <laughs> but we do. We are backlogged, and here here are just a few of the ones that will come up in the next uh, in the next four weeks. Uh, we're going to have an interview with Scott Megason uh, regarding what to do when your coding or billing staff leaves suddenly. We're going to have a focus segment on ASC quality reporting and the changes in 2022. Uh, we do have. Have an interview coming up with SIS on uh, implementing an EMR system. That should be interesting again. I'm going to have a special interview with Amit uh, Joani from SIS also on data analytics and the future of data in ASCs. And we're going to do that annual review of the OIG report on the compliance mm-hmm. of accrediting organizations with the conditions for coverage during surveys. And we do have some upcoming training programs. First, the Administrators Boot Camp is a virtual training program for new administrators and administrators that are preparing to take the CASC exam. The program includes weekly voluntary drop-in sessions with John and other staff from AHS, access to a large database of information, and a comprehensive four-day virtual training program. The next live program is February 1st through the 4th, 2022, and there's also a self-paced version available at ASCPodcast.com. And the New Jersey Association uh, January 26-22 program uh, was going to be live at Galloping Hill Country Club, and sadly, it has gone virtual now. Uh, Ann Geyer will be speaking there, and uh, I think I'll be manning a virtual booth. I think that's how that's going to work. So it's kind of sad that we've had to go back uh, to virtual conferences uh, there. Uh, uh, New Jersey is uh, one of our favorite places to visit. We have quite a number of clients down there. So uh, sorry, we're not going to be seeing you in uh, January here. And ASCA 2022 will be in Dallas, Texas, April 27th to the 30th, 2022. John will be speaking on a special track for new ASC administrators. And, and you- for more information, go to ASCassociation.org. And the New Jersey Annual Conference is going to be January, uh, June 7th and 8th, and it's hopefully going to be at the Hilton East Brunswick. And I'll be speaking on a fascinating topic, which is very pertinent right now, which is succession planning. Mm-hmm. And also, don't forget about our recorded events. All are available on ASCPodcast.com. We have the Credentialing Conference, the Fall 2021 Finance and Accounting Conference, um, the Conditions for Coverage Conference, which really I think is useful for anybody, yeah. um, and the Medical Director Conference. And again, all those are available on ASCPodcast.com. So that's it for this episode of the ASC podcast with John Galey. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is, as I mentioned earlier, is Sue Cronkite. Executive producer is John Galey. Research assistance is provided by our wonderful team at AHS. Uh, Sue Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Amy Durbano, and Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Uh, music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast has been an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. 
when reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com.